if you're average in this industry, you're a superstar in some other industries. Maybe they're not calling it product manager, but maybe they call it business developer or, I don't know, project manager or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But like some of the more physical industries, like where you ship hardware, where you talk about retail chains and so forth, maybe this is not that sexy because you're not working on Instagram's new portfolio app or whatever. But this is the thing where I'm just like, don't just let go of your product management skills. They're extremely valuable. You're extremely yeah. good in this, even if you change industries, right? Welcome to the Product Weekend Podcast with Brito, Moita, and Tujão. We hope you enjoy. Hello there. I'm João Moita, and today, together with Tujão, we're bringing you the exciting, insightful, and really fun conversation we had with Lea Tauhan. Lea is one of the most active product leaders on LinkedIn and the most prominent voice in PLG in Europe. She advised several well-known companies and transformed the way many of them do product-led growth. If you just want a five-minute summary of the discussion, you can check the release notes at the end of the episode. But I can assure you that this will be an hour well spent. We talked about topics besides PLG that you'll probably enjoy, like thought leadership, humor, and alternative career paths. This is the final episode of our first season, and we couldn't ask for a better season finale. Hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Welcome, Lea. Nice to have you here on the podcast for the last episode of our first seasons. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. It's really cool to be here. Welcome. All right. We, our listeners already know it. Maybe you haven't experienced it, but we always start with a more personal question, which is what's a recent weekend that you really enjoyed? Oh, that's, that's the wrong question at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> so a recent weekend for Lea is usually just sitting on the sofa and having two cats next to me. I'm trying okay. to live the stereotype of the crazy cat lady. <laughs> And uh, yeah, no, I enjoy For quiet time. Crazy cat lady, two cats is not that many. You need more cats. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, no, but I like being alone at home and just enjoy the quiet. I'm not someone that does party, but uh, yeah, that's what I do usually on the weekend. And just watch movies. I did watch okay. one though, The Society in the Snow. It's Interesting. Yeah, it What's leaves it you with nightmares. Oh, okay. So if any of our listeners want to have some nightmares, that's a good recommendation. Yeah, it's good for that. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And yeah, also probably a lot of our listeners have came across your content or have heard from you in a conference, podcast. Yeah, you're pretty much all over the place for product management content. But can you give a quick introduction about your background and how you got into this world of product and growth more specifically? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Lea Tarin. I've been in this industry now for 25 years. I've started as a, as a UX engineer, UX researcher. And um, the way that I summarize this is that the beginning of my career was trying to understand what goes wrong in products because you're trying to fix interfaces and you try to understand the motivations between the people and the machines as they're interacting with each other. And I think at some point I also studied something close to human interaction design in this regard. And then I got mm -hmm. frustrated because I figured out all of these problems and I couldn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And that's when I switched to product management, which was about, I don't know at this point anymore, 14 years, maybe something like this. And mm -hmm. yeah, I always stuck with this. I've been always a mixture between a product leader like head of product then back to being a product manager again yeah but i think the red thread that goes through all of this is that i always loved doing product like building something that changes something in the world and yeah i ended up here because i figured it's fun it makes a lot of money and it's something very actionable and it's also measurable this is something that i was always very attracted to uh, understanding whether what you do actually has an impact and it's not just like marketing blah blah Mm -hmm. And that's how I kind of position myself as well. I read a lot. I read and write a lot about product like growth and how to scale yeah. companies. That is the short form of that. Yeah. You also had a bit of an entrepreneurship career at some point, right? Do you mean like my own startups? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. So I founded four startups. I crashed a couple of those into the wall very successfully. Some of them are really bad, but I think the big sin there is not to create and crash startups. It's more that it took me a long time with some of them to actually learn what went wrong there. And yeah, but yeah, I've founded my startups. I know now whether I'm good at it or not. And right now I have, I'm running the most successful one, which is my solopreneurship. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of fun with that. Yeah. So you feel like your skills and your strengths are more towards helping companies scale from a relatively good level to a bigger scale? Rather I think than for a lot of your own thing? For a lot of companies right now, it's more about survival. It's mm-hmm. I have a lot of companies that I talk to. It's usually portfolio companies from other VCs like that are like, hey, Leia, like we have someone there. It's a company that has some kind of revenue and they're now trying to figure out how to grow or survive. Um, how to survive in some ways. So yeah. One of the difficult things is to find some kind of product that people want. That's a hard part. But like after that, you also need to figure out the distribution. So how do we scale this without mm-hmm. killing ourselves? Yeah. Because this is what a lot of founders are underestimating and also a lot of product managers unfortunately do not understand that whatever you're building in the early stages of a company, whatever it is, whatever the method is, this method does not scale. And there's not a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So like first you try to build something that people want, that's fine. But now at some point, the name of the game changes to how do we not only build something or optimize what we have built, but also defend the current customers that we have. Right. So retaining customers and finding more of the same that we did. And this is such a cross-functional challenge in so many ways that it really plays to my strengths. I am right. I don't think that I'm an expert in anything specifically, like you know, like in one deep kind of topic, because I also struggle with I don't want to call it a learning disability, but like I have dyslexia, so I struggle reading a lot of mm-hmm. kind of text. So for me, it takes a long time to conceptualize a lot of stuff and simplifying the knowledge of different functions like sales, marketing, how do Mm -hmm. you run a company and so forth is one of my strengths. And I realized that when I actually bring this to other people, that this seems to be a marketable skill. I would disagree, at least from what I've seen about that you're not a specialist in any of the things because PLG, I would say it's a thing now, even though it's... A combination of many different areas and you're probably the most well-known person in product-led growth in europe i would say at least from what in I've europe seen. maybe yeah now, now you just <laughs> attached competing europe. with elena yeah, on the elena. us uh. But, yeah. but yeah so since you are that kind of figure in this field i think we're legally obliged to talk about plg even though i don't want to focus too much of our conversation on that because there's a lot of content available that you've produced, that you've talked about in other podcasts. But I still want to go there a little bit, also because by law, we have to. So with that, what's your definition of PLG? How would you define this discipline? I think to keep it really short, a couple of years ago, as a product manager myself, the one thing that I really struggled to understand first before we go into product like growth was what does a growth function do in a company, like a good one? So what does right. a growth manager do? What is growth if it's not marketing? And that's the first answer to this, right? So like it is not marketing. It really is about understanding how can we connect potential users and prospects to what we do successfully and as cheap as possible. And what that means is you need to understand something from marketing, you need to understand something from product, and you need to understand monetization, which is very rare for just product managers. Like they usually Mm -hmm. do not know how to drive marketing or they just do not know how to do monetization or it's usually Mm -hmm. we as product managers, we tend to be very focused on this one thing, which is creating products, but we don't know how to market them and we don't know how to sell them. And one of the things that we started to notice also in companies is that if there is no one in the company who really considers all the functions, mm-hmm. how do you want to figure out whether what you're building and distributing in the market is worth it? And what I mean with that is that you can go to marketing and you can ask, so like, how much money can we make if we are farming this particular keyword? But because they don't know product, they don't really know what what you're really selling, right? So like, where does this go? What is the exact context of this? And then you have the flip side, which is, 
product is really good at figuring out and building something, but then they mm-hmm. don't understand SEO, they don't understand content marketing, they don't understand how to monetize anything. Right. And this function cannot be done by the CEO for forever, uh, cannot be done by leadership forever. So you need to have some kind of company function that goes across these lines, and that's growth. And if you're doing right. it with the product first in mind, so you are letting your customers or the prospects self-serve the value or most of it, then we consider you to be product-led. And if you're really focusing on this as a main distribution model, then it is product-led growth. Yeah. Right. That's a pretty clear definition, I'd say. And you mentioned that it cannot be done by leadership or by the CEO forever, so being the glue between these areas. So mostly, yeah. and, and like repeating what you said, marketing, product and monetization when do you think it's or what are some signs that it's the right time for a company to go into product-led growth and eventually to have someone dedicated to this Mm -hmm. Um, this is a tricky question because it really depends on where a company is coming from if you are starting a completely new business and you think about, okay, should we do product-like growth? Should we have some kind of trials? Should we have some kind of self-serve in any way? Should we have a freemium and so forth? Of course, when you're already founding the company, then you can do this already, right? So like you can already structure your product in this way. Actually, most startups are starting already like with in that sense. The problem that you oftentimes have is that you have your trial, you have your freemium, and you might have a product that makes people's eyes glow and so forth, but nobody's coming. Mm-hmm. Right, so like we have a perfect access, we have the perfect ramp to the highway of the world, but nobody's coming. So mm-hmm. now you need to figure out how do we generate interest. And sometimes you just cannot do this just with SEO or like just by producing content and so forth. So you need to employ salespeople who are just going there and just try to generate some kind of interest in the market, which does not make you sales-led per se. But these salespeople, for a better lack of word, are usually the founders. Like you need to sell, mm-hmm. you need to generate some kind of groundswell moment in the market. And this can only grow if your product is good enough because whatever interest you grow needs to then infect others. And only if a product is really exceptional, then you will also go out of your way and tell others about it, which is a low, this this is a slow growth. This is a slow kind of movement. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, this is, it is difficult to answer. So for a new company, you need to think about it usually probably already at the start in some ways, but it's not about growth. It's more about being product led. And as a sales-led company, which is also a very dominant kind of reality that we have, usually after 10 to 15 million ARR, Mm -hmm. so yearly revenue, you start to think about, should we now also do something with product-led growth, right? So these are usually companies who are selling to enterprise clients and so forth, because what the reality Mm -hmm. that they are dealing with is that Customers have less money or they're willing to pay less because there's much more alternatives out there. If you think about CRMs, for instance, so they need to find some way to handle some of their pipeline self-serve and then also make their existing salespeople more efficient. So depending on where you start from, the -hmm. question is always, yeah, like it really depends on where you start from. And then the other thing is, and I just want to say this really quickly, is that almost all mature product-led growth companies. So companies that have some kind of self-serve funnel and make more than a couple of million in revenue, almost all of them have some salespeople. Just Mm -hmm. wanted to make this clear that product-led growth does not mean that you do not have sales. And Mm -hmm. it also means on the flip side for product managers, because they usually love talking about product-led growth, that this is not a product initiative. This is a company initiative. It is a distribution problem, even though it has the word product in it. Mm -hmm. So you're not the most important person in the room. Yeah. And if I understand well, when starting a company, you mentioned that you need this or you can have this from the start to have emotion, but eventually you will also need some muscle to grow things faster. And that's why you need sales and you cannot rely only on product led growth for forever, eventually. Um. The problem that you have is like a chicken and egg problem. So what we say in product-led growth, and let's take a very classical example. I worked for small PDF. We had millions and millions of users every month. And 
The good thing about this is if you have a lot of users is that you can test a lot of stuff, right? So like we can change something in interface, we can do an A-B test and then we release it, right? This is like the ideal thing. But how do you get a lot of users if you don't have a lot of users? So that's yeah. the kind of reality. It's not to make things grow faster. In some way it is, but it is really on like, you need to figure out at the start whether people really love your product. You need to figure out, do you really have a good product? Is it really good enough? Mm -hmm. Because a good product means if you invest $100 into it, you are going to convert a specific amount of people through these $100. And then a specific amount of these customers are also going to stay with you in the next year. So you mm -hmm. need almost like a time machine to look forward. Is this revenue function efficient enough? Mm -hmm. If you want to use a metaphor, one that Elena also quite uses quite a lot is like you have this bucket. Right? So you have a water bucket. And if there are a lot of holes in it, then whatever you put into the top is going to flow faster out than you can pour it back in. Yeah. And figuring out how good this bucket is your retention. And yeah. th you need to be careful about this because a lot of founders, what they do, and this is th the number one topic that I have with most of them, is that they think that, oh, so we now we made a million. More. We just need to add now more. Mm -hmm. and But then the water just flows two times faster at the bottom. So this is not scalable, right? Like it's, you cannot grow like this. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not sustainable so at all. We need to fix the leaky bucket first. Especially now because our capital, like the money that we have in the market is not cheap anymore, which means we need to do more with what we have. So the game is now back on retention. And uh, yeah, that's why knowing whether you have a good product is a very important thing. Okay, so yeah, I remember that it's actually an example you used on your product market fit guide that you also have on your website. And we're going to link it to it on the show notes. I guess what you're saying is that basically, and that's what something you mentioned there, is that from the beginning, although sometimes people think about PLG as something that you start doing when you scale, you actually have to start it from the beginning, right? I don't know if you can elaborate a little bit on that. You have to start thinking about it, right? So the way that we think about it also in finding product market fit. So the methodology that I kind of use is in some way thinking about you have at the very first step, you have some kind of value that you promise to people. That's the thing that we all do, right? Before you read a book, you have to be drawn into it. It's the message. So you promise something to people. If you cannot prove that you can attract a specific amount of people just based on this message to you, then why do you even bother with creating a good product? Right, that's the base message here. The second part is, so let's say you get 100 customers in front of your doors. Now you need to have a good product. And for most products, it is ultimately true that if you can now not make the people who came, the 100 people who came, to really try and love your product so they come back again without payment, then why do you worry about payment? Offer it for free because only products that are actually good and really solve something for the customers will be used because then money is not in it, right? Because oftentimes you have companies who are trying to figure out with money, oh, we're too expensive. We need to reduce the price a little bit more and a little bit more. But if you cannot retain customers for free, then you have a problem. Once you have proven this, then you can worry about pricing. So how much money should we charge for it and so forth. And this entire function of attracting people, retaining them, and then also monetizing them, and hopefully retaining them for a longer time, this is what we call product market fit, if it is above a specific efficiency in a big enough market. In other words, you promise something, and the closer the promise is to the reality that the customers are experiencing, the more retention you will have. And in product-like growth, we try to fulfill this before we charge the customer. That's very important, right? So like we try to give you something for free before we charge you the big money. This also goes for enterprise contracts, by the way, right? This is not just like for B2C customer products where we just like charge like $10 a month. This can go really for the bigger clients as well. So you prioritize retention before monetization? You, you have to because... Yeah. If you don't do this, you don't know how efficient your funnel is. And the other thing is that from the customer's perspective, just you, me, everybody, we have a problem that it's not difficult anymore to find products. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to find the good ones. So I have a very specific problem right now that I don't know how to solve. Like I have the budget and I need an executive assistant. I need someone mm -hmm. badly. 
but I don't know how to find the right person. It's mm -hmm. easy for me to find someone. It's easy for me to make some kind of announcement somewhere and then I get three to 400 CVs, but it is very difficult for me to find the correct one. Yeah. And this is the same problem that we have with software. It's not so much just about the monetary cost. It's about the energy that I have to invest specifically as a company, like to evaluate something. So this is a motion of evaluation where we try to make it easy to figure out whether you have the correct thing or not. All right. And yeah, you, you mentioned also that it's important to start thinking about uh, PLG early on. If mm -hmm. you're an individual contributor PM in a company where you see that no one is thinking about it, no one is talking about it, what are some ways that this person could have some influence and try to start the conversations at least? I get this question extremely often. And usually when you ask why it did not work before or like why this question even comes up, then it's usually because of a business case is missing. So mm. instead of like just saying, oh, we should do product by growth. Oh, we should do the thing that that person or that Leia is saying or whatever. You need to put numbers to this. Right. Think about it in this way. If you are a CEO and you have 20 employees and now someone comes and is just saying, oh, like this thing, this looks really good. Sometimes you can go by conviction. That's true. Mm -hmm. But more than more often than not, you're playing with the salaries of people. If you do yeah. product like growth wrong and you just think that you can just throw something out there and it's going to work for sure, then you're going to have a problem. So yeah. I know that in the majority of times I'm going to be wrong. I know that myself, right? So like when we talk about A-B experimentation and changes in the product and so forth. So why would you expect an executive to change something so fundamental, how you distribute a product without seeing the numbers first and having right. a well-informed business case. Now, a business case is not a scientific study, right? It's not, oh, this is going to happen. But it's if you cannot find in a business case what this should do for the business, mm -hmm. theoretically, then how should it happen in real life, right? Like you need to have some kind of vision that this is really better for the customers that we want to reach because usually customers and prospects that you're getting through PLG are different, Mm -hmm. than the ones that are classically sales-led found. That's yeah. just what it is, right? So like the entire company work starts to work different. And this mm -hmm. is something where I'm just like, if I can give you any career advice for product managers or growth managers or whatever, please learn how the products that you build are being marketed. Learn how they're being sold. Learn how the company runs that is hosting your product. Mm-hmm. Please understand this because only if you do that, then you can actually create a business case. Then you can say, if we're starting to build this particular feature, then that allows marketing to farm these about these, these particular keywords. If they're mm -hmm. doing this and they get to a specific position, that means we're going to get this many new leads or, or traffic that is coming in. For yeah. sales, it means they get an additional thing over there, which means this could actually positively influence this. So that's what I mean. If you're just in product and you don't know how your product is being marketed and then being sold, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, your time yeah. is going to be over soon because right. all this bullshit product management that we used to have for years is coming to an end. It really is because AI is automating it slowly and slowly away. That's why you need to understand more than just like your own function. Yeah, basically, the tip is to make good business cases and understand the other functions and now this impacts mostly marketing and sales those are probably the most impacted areas so you need to understand those areas in order to do the business case it's not just about how much you will make but also how much you will save with this yeah two areas and, and it's also about so we're really good in companies to understand how our money metrics are doing so for instance like cac and cac payback so like how much money did we pay to acquire a specific mm -hmm. user. 90% of all the product managers that I have ever mentored, they have no idea what these numbers are in the business. Yeah. And so why should you know this? I'm a product manager. I don't have to care about this. And I say, yes, you do. Because if mm -hmm. these numbers are starting to look bad, then they can hire less salespeople. If they can hire less salespeople, that means they can hire less people. Like they, you will make less money, right? Like your show some yeah. interest into the business, specifically if you're in a smaller company. So if you understand these numbers, you don't have to become a salesperson. You don't have to become the marketer. But if you can say that, hey, if we're building, this is so on point to the ICPs that we have. So like our ideal customer profiles, mm -hmm. then hopefully we can increase our CAC because our CAC has been on the decline for the last one or two years. If a mm -hmm. CEO hears this from a product person, they're going to be like, 
hey, that's really cool, right? I'm an expert in CAC. I'm an expert in the business metrics. Let's not mm -hmm. connect this with what you think is correct in product. And then you'll yeah. see what happens. You don't need to know it better than others. You just need to have some kind of idea what is important to others. Also being able to have those conversations. Yeah. That's a cool one. Um, okay, I think we are more or less half time in our episode. So I think we can wrap up the PLG and talk a bit also about careers and about thought leadership and so on. So just to wrap it up, do you have uh, specific recommendations where our listeners can go to to find more about your work and about product-led growth? The easiest way is if you go to my website, which is leatarin.com. I imagine it's in the show notes or you yeah. just go to Google and you search for PLG and then you type in the name Lea and then my stuff is all over the place. That's, That's... the advantage of being everywhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it should work. Did you put some work in SEO to achieve that or was it organic? That's a very good question. I When I started about one and a half years ago to write on Substack or whatever, it was more than a year ago. I was having to choose between Ghost and some other products. Hmm. And Substack is not that good for SEO. Hmm. And I chose Substack for a multitude of reasons. Doesn't really matter. But in November last year, for, no, two years ago, sorry. In November two years ago, I posted my PLG guide, which blew up. And 50,000, hmm. 200,000 people have read it immediately. And mm -hmm. just because it was reshared all the time. And this did not yeah. happen through, nobody was looking for this, right? So nobody was like, oh, PLG guide. And then they were seeing my stuff. It was more like, hey, this is a good document. I would like to recommend this out. to someone else, right. which kind of is the proof of my point, right? Yeah. That everything is coming down to recommendations. So no, I did not absolutely spend no, zero, zero minutes mm -hmm. on SEO. And now I'm oh, just yeah. fortunate that it works. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. One of the main SEO things is having many reference links of your stuff spread all over the place. And I guess you achieve that a bit by accident. <laughs> which yeah, is yeah, nice. yeah, 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 I don't know. I'm lucky. Yeah. And when did you decide specifically to start growing your audience and to start reaching more people? Was there a specific moment that it clicked for you that you needed to do this or was it more organic? I had a conversation in the company where I was at. And I had a very specific mirror board where I had, I think it was called Leah doing some serious stuff in next year. And I started to create a tree out of it. So what keeps me from my ambitions? And my ambition was back then, like, I want to have a really good CPO job. It's just what I thought. Like, I thought mm -hmm. that I have to become a CPO. I was really, I, I wasn't so hot on getting a good title because I was already ahead of product at that point. I already had two positions, right? Like I had my startups, all of this is fine. But like I, what I was talking about was really like to be a CPO at a very well-known startup or a director's position. Mm -hmm. And as luck would have it, Miro tried to uh, recruit me for their whiteboard application back then. It must have been two two years ago or something like this. And I started to get some interest from the market. I was not big at all in terms of the reach or so. Like I was not known at all, whatever. But the company that I was in, which was small PDF, already had a very good standing in the market as well. And we were getting more calls by recruiters and so forth. So I started to have some kind of signals from the market. Hey, this is starting to get interesting. And <clears throat> I was creating this tree on, so what keeps me from getting to my dreams? Like being a CPO. And then I had this huge kind of tree around, which my CV is garbage. I don't know enough about sales. I'm really bad at marketing. I'm really bad at this and that. So like I had this kind of moment of what are my weaknesses? Right. And I knew that I have to actively sit down every day and do something for myself. I might not know how to, but I'm going to iron out all of these weaknesses in the next year, which was in 2022. So that was the idea in 2021 that I would iron out all of this in 2022. Mm -hmm. And I went to my boss back then and I said that, look, This is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. Am I going to do this in this company or am I going to do it in another company? Because yeah. I know that I cannot become the CPO here because you're the CPO, but is there a director opening here or not? And I just knew that it's going to happen somewhere. I just needed to clarify where it is not happening. And this was a, a very specific shift for myself because you can sometimes 
fight against windmills inside of companies in some way and that you think that, oh, I should get more paid more or I deserve a promotion or whatever. But for me, this was not the question. The question was just like, is it happening here or is it not happening here? Because if it's not, then I'm going to go somewhere else. Right. And it was, it was very clear that there was no that there was no room to grow with small PDF. And then for four to five months, I, I started to search actively on the outside and I started to also post about it on LinkedIn, not about my growth journey, but more like about all the topics that I started to research. I got to know Elena, which still to this day is the most important person I have met on this particular journey. And I grew very fast, but steady, like really steady because I was just like, I'm going to sit down every day. And every day that I do this, there will be an output in form of some kind of post on LinkedIn where I generate value. So it was not just right. about, oh, getting like 50 engagements or whatever. I did not post any memes, nothing funny. This mm -hmm. was all serious learning because I wanted to hold myself accountable. Um, the first thousand people were brutal. It was really brutal. In terms of feedback? Nobody Hard was getting there. Mm, no, nothing. It's just sometimes I had two reactions on the post. Sometimes I had one reaction on the post. And it's hard for people to just... But I did not notice back then that I didn't make a difference because not everybody's reacting that reads your stuff. And then suddenly you get some people coming back and say, hey, Leah, I really like your stuff. Please keep continue writing this. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Like my first customer. And yeah, the rest is history. Like I, I generated more and more. And I always try to differentiate myself from these bubbleheads that are just like giving some very generic get up mm -hmm. at the morning at five o'clock and eat a croissant and then you're going to be good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that, that was my journey and the reason for kicking it off. Mm -hmm. so yeah, especially in, in the beginning, you were more focused on giving serious and well-thought advice and learnings, but following that hustle mentality, let's say, for yourself without necessarily talking about it, of showing up every day, doing that work consistently despite the fact that you were not getting that many reactions back then. School. And yeah, especially during this past year, or at least the last few months, you started posting more like ironic, funny, facetious. It's a word. Do you know the word facetious? <laughs> I think it's, so. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. But as Chris, I told you, I'm dyslexic. So I, I'm just going to say no. <laughs> yeah, it is Chris Compton that taught me that word. It's a very cool one. It's basically being ironic in the face of serious matters, basically. Yeah. But yeah, I, would, I, I think it's a word that describes well some of your content and comments as well. I, a lot of times that when I read your comments on people that are super serious, making a very serious thing in your comment there, it makes my day sometimes, to be honest. Yeah, thank um, you. Yeah, that's cool. But, but yeah, I really love that content, that type of content and that taking things a bit more lightly. Yeah. Is there a specific reason for you doing that? Because also it's something that started not from the beginning. Like at what point did you realize that this more lighthearted content was good and people were into it? So, and also how do you relate with yeah. it? Yeah. So there's a calculated side to this in the sense of why am I not posting the top three dad jokes every day, for instance, just in general. There, there is some kind of method to it as well. Also the memes and the funny comments and so forth. Not everything, mm -hmm. but some of it is. The stuff that I talk about on LinkedIn still in the majority is talking to entrepreneurs and people who have companies. So if I'm making fun of others, like about their revenue or some other stuff, I'm like, I'm not putting down people for have, not having a specific amount of revenue. It's not what I mean, but sometimes they make really stupid statements. Like... Here's my playbook for the next seven steps on how to invest into a unicorn. And then I'm just like sitting in the comments and just ask them like, so how many did you invest otherwise? Because that sounds like it's not a scale. Like it just, mm -hmm. this humor only makes sense if you're also in this kind of area. So mm -hmm. when we talk about making fun of stuff, then it's really about this. And the other thing is that it is very easy once you become bigger and recognized like I am, to get high on your own supply and think that you are way more important than you actually are. Mm -hmm. It was very important to me. And I had this conversation with a lot of people already two years ago that I do not become one of these empty people that are just like, they're completely disconnected from the area that they're speaking in and they're just giving mm -hmm. like this empty kind of advice. 
I, I mean specifically, yeah, yeah, specifically anything where a certificate means nothing. And I've had this, I've had this experience with some academia that I spent a lot of money with teachers who are just not that good and the certificate doesn't mean anything. And I always vouch to myself that I'm not going to become one of these. Having said that, now I sound very cool and very cleared up and so forth. I have it easy now because I make enough money, like I can afford to do this. It paid off incredibly well for me and it is very easy for me to be on the high horse and just say, yeah, like I always just create valuable content. I just could not do it in any other way. It just would not work because I've learned so much garbage in the last 10 to 15 years that just did not really work out. And like stuff that is in books that is just not replicable in an actual business. Yeah. That is just not it bringing just you forward once. as a product manager. Yeah. And I'm trying not to be like this. And I think humor is a very important way to also make fun of yourself, which I very often do. And I think Elena and me are extremely honest about what we do, how we do it. You can also look at our numbers. All of it is public, not just like the impressions, but also like how much we charge our clients, right? Like we're not hiding any of this. Yeah. And, uh, and you, you ever get in trouble from your viewer? Anything went wrong? All the time. You know, like whenever you have a spiky point of view mm -hmm. and you say something like, oh, product managers need to know SQL, the query language, yeah. you will have someone that is just going to be like, no, that's not true and so forth. And then I'm just like, yeah, it is. Here's my reasoning. And I can come across mm -hmm. very combative, right? Like I'm not easygoing. I'm just, I have a very short kind of fuse. And then I'm just like, I'm not getting angry, but I'm just like, no. <laughs> yeah. There was a time where people started to then use my name and they started to make entire posts, what kind of a quack I am and like what I don't know and so forth. And these voices, they have completely subsided now that I'm bigger, which is a bit weird. Mm -hmm. I wish they would fight with me much more in the comments because <laughs> what people really do not understand is that I think in my earlier days, one of the most, one of the best articles that I've had on LinkedIn was when I was shitting on the NPS. And I said, hey, the NPS is just not a good metric. Mm -hmm. And the top comment was Elena saying, no, it is a good one. <laughs> and then we went back and forth, like why I think it's bad. And she said, like, why it's good. We're both recognized people by the market. Mm -hmm. And this was great, right? Like it was really good. And I don't take this personal. There was not a single time was I like, oh, Elena, now I have to quit the friendship or whatever. <laughs> it was always like, yeah, this is how we roll. And that's totally fine. We did not fabricate any of it. It's just that mm -hmm. I'm using it in a very specific way and she uses it in a different way. And this is where these things seem to work. Yeah. Yeah. But mm -hmm. I get in, in, in trouble all the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people don't tell me to. <laughs> yeah. You're saying that you, you wish they, they would still fight you more now that you're stronger. Why don't you wage war I, on them now? No, 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 no. <laughs> like, let's call this war. Okay. The thing why I'm not on Twitter is because you can fault LinkedIn for a lot of things, right? And there's a lot of people who are just writing total nonsense. That's true. But it is way less combative and way less mm -hmm. um, inflammatory. Which is, yeah, I think that's the right word. It's way less mm -hmm. inflammatory. And specifically as a woman, I have to pay attention because Sometimes it's also a little bit of a security question. I have some crazy people in my P in my DMs as well, also on mm -hmm. LinkedIn. Take that for what you will. Cool. And th there's one thing about being recognized in the industry or considered like a thought leader, which is if you don't have a book, you're not really a thought leader. And you have your PLG guide or product led guide that you've referred to it as almost a book and you also have no. it a book-like version on Gumroad, but you're not yet a published author. No. Do you think one needs to have a book to be considered a proper thought leader? No, you're absolutely not. not. thought leader yet? Absolutely not. I, I don't think so. But So what is a book? A book is like a kind of the one thing that you put out and then you cannot change it afterwards anymore like a website. So... If you're talking, if you're talking crap, then it is immortalized. I think a book is just a different form of content in that regard. A lot of people that I really respect in the area have made books. A lot of people that I don't respect have also made books. I really don't know in that sense what I should do with it. 
maybe I'm going to do it eventually. What I really love about books is the physical form of it. Now, mm-hmm. I have a huge shelf back there with a lot of books from people that I have uh, listened to because I usually try to listen on audiobooks. So I buy an audiobook and then I buy also the physical uh, copy. It's very rare that I actually read the physical copy mm-hmm. because I just I, I can retain stuff better when I listen to it. And nevertheless, books have some kind of place. I think I've written so much over the last year that I could easily make a book. Mm-hmm. The problem that I have is that I only want to put out a book about PLG that is so good that it's going to blow everyone away. It has to be the best book in the world around PLG and not the second best and not the third best. So it needs to be the best. And with the best, I don't mean the the most copies sold, the most recommended by people who are reading it. Mm-hmm. And I'm still thinking about whether I should do it. It is a lot of work, mm-hmm. but I'm going to figure out some way to do it. Yeah. But yeah, maybe it's going to happen. Yeah, if you want to have the best one, it's better to have it sooner than later because the competition will be higher eventually. There will be more books. I don't know. I'm not that impressed. The only person who could give me some challenge is not writing a book, so it's fine. <laughs> okay. You're keeping your competition in check to make sure that she yeah, doesn't... Yeah, so far, I mean, go ahead. There's, there's a lot of cool people coming up and there's a lot of cool people. And I think the ones that I really care about, they are my friends as well. So I think, you know, in a way you should always look at it this way. The best friends in your life are the ones that absolutely hate to not be where you are, but at the same time, they celebrate you all the time when you reach a new milestone. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that I'm building my relationships as well, right? Like I celebrate everything that they did. And then I'm thinking... Why did I not think about this? How can I make this better? Like you're pushing yourself, you're pushing each other a lot, and I'm very competitive. Cool. Do you have, you were saying that you want to have like the best book, and if I understand, you're kind of unsure if you can make it or how to make it, or if it's worth it to put in the, the effort at this moment. Is imposter syndrome something that you struggle with? currently it used to be a big problem i think i think that the thing that you used to do in the past or like that we used to do more in the past is like you have some kind of imposter syndrome in that you think like you do not deserve to be where you are and some people are going to find you out and so forth i still Mm -hmm. have this sometimes but i think it is more dependent on the day on where i just did not sleep well or my hormones are all over the board or Mm -hmm. whatever it can really be that some days I just feel like bad about everything that I ever did. Like I look at my podcast, I'm like, why do I even deserve to be up there? I watch a keynote that I have watched maybe five to six times already. I'm watching it again and I'm like, what did I do there? And the other days I liked it and so forth. So it's this is not a really real, this is not an objective kind of process that is happening. And I feel like a healthy dose of imposter syndrome is actually a good thing. I think yeah. in many aspects... I'm good at what I do because I constantly think that it's not good enough for what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a great point. And I think this is pushing you to do always a little bit more. And especially when you're tired, because Mm -hmm. when you're tired and you think you're always good, then it's like, yeah, you know, like what I delivered is already good enough. And I genuinely love this kind of work. For me, I'm very, I'm extremely fortunate to love what I do and also to have a healthy dose of imposter syndrome without feeling that I'm the hottest in the industry. Take it for what you will. So I think so, yeah, it is still there, but it, it, it declines now slowly, which is good. I'm not stressing that much anymore. That's cool. Awesome. Then let's to start wrapping up. Let's talk just a little bit about um, careers and career paths. So there's the traditional career path in product, let's say, where you start as an associate, then PM, then senior Mm -hmm. PM, group PM, or principal PM, depending if you go IC or manager, director, CPO, which was a career path that you were on and that you were aiming for the CPO as the top of the, or the end of the line kind of thing. But there are also very different career paths Especially in product, I've seen everything. A lot of people that come from entrepreneurial ventures or that have entrepreneurial ventures in between product roles, consulting and fractional roles are also very common. 
but have you seen any common pattern or common thread in the most successful people you've worked with? Um, I can give you the, the very standard answer of everybody who really wants to grow is becoming a very good PM in the future and so forth and yada, yada, yada. I think what you described is a very good summary of what's out there. I would say that right now in tech, in product management in tech, predominantly in companies that offer SaaS services, it is quite brutal right now. And there was a very good conversation on Reddit actually on, so for, I think it was someone that said, hey, should I go back to being an engineer? Because they originally were an engineer. And I think in my head, you have about three kind of differentiations between being a product manager. You can now go into growth where you focus a little bit more on acquisition and you try to connect back to what the company has and sales and so forth, like the stuff that I talk about. Mm -hmm. You can be a classical product manager that just tries to climb the ladder the way that you just described it. Or you become a technical PM, which goes closer to this kind of AI wave thing, like where you try right. to understand products that do not have an interface. However, I also do think that instead of asking yourself if it doesn't work in any of these three kind of areas, I really do think that people should not forget that the skills that you have as a product manager, what makes you average in tech, is actually extremely valuable in different industries. So if you're a good product manager that can drive things forward, that can really understand where things matter and what to ship and when not to ship, mm -hmm. if you're average in this industry, you're a superstar in some other industries. Maybe they're not calling it product manager, but maybe they call it business developer or, I don't know, project manager or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But like some of the more physical industries, like where you ship hardware, where you talk about retail chains and so forth, maybe this is not that sexy because you're not working on Instagram's new portfolio app or whatever. But this is the thing where I'm just like, don't just let go of your product management skills. They're extremely valuable. You're extremely yeah. good in this, even if you change industries, right? So we're not just living in a tech world. Get off of LinkedIn, try to mm -hmm. figure out what do other industries call a very specific position. And if you're really good in what you do, then you can also compensate for a lack of domain experience, Yeah. right? And this is the thing that a lot of people underestimate. If you are reliable, if you know how to drive things forward, you can compensate for a lot of stuff. You can really compensate for a lot of stuff because this is way yeah. harder to find than someone that has five years of PM experience over three years of experience. Yeah. No, yeah. And we've talked about it in the podcast with other guests as well that it's product management. It's more of a way of thinking or a set of yeah. skills and a way of being, even in life, even if for your, the way you deal with personal things. Uh, it's more a set of skills than a specific career necessarily. And yeah, I felt that even talking with some friends from other industries that sometimes I just give them some like yeah. insights over a beer and just this product thinking of something that I've never been involved in, just the thinking usually gives a lot of value and helps solving some things. So that's a cool yeah. one. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Get Just get out of your bubble. Go to meetups about other industries, whatever, however mm -hmm. crazy that it feels. You will get some light bulbs will go off in your head for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And about your specific situation at the moment, you mentioned that you have the all the prices available and I saw the, basically a self-serve pricing page kind of thing. And how did you... First of all, did you ever think that you'd be in this place that you can just charge, I think it's 900 that you charge for an hour? And, and now people... it's a little bit more, unfortunately. It's about yeah. $3,000 an hour. Yeah. So, and I think you need to update. No, I don't know where you have to $900 per hour Executive anymore. Executive like, coaching. Oh, that's the coaching part. Okay, that's a different one. Okay, so just for the context. And I actually, I'm, I might actually delete that one. So okay. what I if people um, are listening, go ahead, go before <laughs> go, Leo go book deletes. Leo before she becomes expensive. Yeah. yeah. So coaching mm -hmm. um, is not my core okay. thing that I do. And to be completely honest, since I had this on the on the website, I've never closed a coaching uh, client, okay. like not a single one. Which is mm. funny because this is the cheapest offer that I have on yeah. the website itself. <laughs> In order to understand 
this kind of pricing page and where this is coming from, you need to understand how people actually want to work with me. Usually they read my free material, they listen to podcasts like these, they see me on stage or on some other events. And and then after a couple of months, they write me an email and then they say, hey, Leah, can you help us? We have a problem that we really should talk about. Yeah. And then I get into a call and we try to, I try to give them some kind of value. I try to figure it out with them. And then I say, look, you can book me for $12,000 a month. You're going to get access to me in a weekly call, which is one hour. And we also have some back and forth conversations on Slack and so forth. So it requires a little bit of context. It's not just like $3,000 an hour. It's just like to limit my kind of time. Mm -hmm. I had to put the prices there where they are. And yeah, what people get, and this is usually on B2B scale-ups, is, is exactly that. So coaching, I'm not a good coach, I think, but I'm really good at like advising companies how to grow and really think about through like th through all the stages of the company that you have and this is my core offer but it's funny mm -hmm. it's funny the cheapest stuff that i have ever offered <laughs> i don't yeah. have a single client no right now no. yeah i should actually delete it yeah that's true so, yeah. yeah that's a lesson that making it cheaper is not the way to to close clients that's not cheaper it's just not my core <laughs> offering yeah. but i did the math the other day so for about one million impressions, I get one paying client mm -hmm. for wow. this particular rate. Take that for what you will. Yeah. yeah, that's a cool one. You did a post on LinkedIn, I think, or maybe on Substack. I don't know. I, yeah. I saw the post and it was quite interesting that you went to it. Though. Yeah, a lot of details. So people are interested. Yeah. It's also I detailed everything it. because the number sounds crazy, but if you actually look how much work goes beyond it, specifically yeah. into the freer content, then you see that this actually makes a lot more sense. Yeah, so yeah it's not that good to brag in this way, but it sounds cool, cool regardless. Congrats, congrats for your <laughs> achievements, yeah. for sure. And just before we go into our sprint questions, you already mentioned on the pants, just exploring this option of going being a technical PM and going into AI. So are there any other trends, especially because we're in the beginning of the year, are there any other trends that you see coming up for PMs? Um, I think in general, it is about anything that helps you to grow, to understand how a company works is probably the trend. And why is that the case? Because if you compete against other PMs, then you need to be exceptional against them. And you will not be exceptional just by doing product better. That's not how this works. You really need to be easy to work with sales. If you understand, for instance, what kind of data that sales requires to sell to an enterprise client as a PM, there's money in that. There's a lot of money in that because it makes it easy for the, for the employer in the future with you to work with you. It makes it much easier to integrate you into the company. So I think try to go cross-functional try to learn something about other functions and then you will be right on the money because this is the future. Like it actually is the future. We need to do much more of the other functions. Yeah, I'm, I know I'm repeating myself there, but it is very difficult to nail down just one trend. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh yeah, we already talked about a few of them. Okay, then let's start wrapping it up. Yeah, if you haven't listened to the podcast, our listeners probably already know, but now we go through the <laughs> sprint questions and then the release notes. So sprint questions, as the name says, short answers, uh, short questions, short answers. And there's three of them. So the first one is, what's a digital product that you would struggle to live without? A digital product that I would struggle living without? I would say Notion because I keep all my information in there. Okay, cool one. And what's the most underrated skill? in product management? To do user research inward. Inward? So, inward, so like in, inside of the company. So instead yeah. of just like doing yeah, yeah. research with customers, do it really also on the inside. What does mm. this mean now? Yeah. Got it. And finally, if you could shadow any product manager or leader for a day, who would it be? That's a good question. I have absolutely no one. I really don't know. I would love to shadow myself. You know what? That would be interesting because I would love to know how it, see, how it feels to be in a room with me because then I get an unbiased kind of experience because I'm never sure whether it's a good thing or not a good thing. 
but I've met, good... I've met, I have met all my heroes. They're all humans, and and I feel like, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, there's no one that comes to mind right now. I'm not, I'm not a role model person as well. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, that's a cool one. When you realize that your heroes are actually real humans, <laughs> it's super fun. Yeah, for some of them, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Tujal, do you have our release notes ready? Yeah, so I hope I don't butcher any of the concepts you shared. I think people will be able to hear the whole conversation. So just going to a few topics. So we started with PLG and what it is, and you're saying that it's about growth, but it's only about marketing. It's a combination of product, monetization, and marketing. You need to get three together to make it work. Uh, and it's a sign that it's time to think about PLG. If you're at the start of a company, it's really about being product-led, more than PLG per se. And if you're in a sales-led company, a rough figure you mentioned will be to, when you're uh, after 10 to 15 million ARR. So that's the threshold we're looking for. To, uh, yeah. And after that, you can think about it. Then uh, the thing is, you also mentioned, you really need to figure if you have a good product. That's really key on PLG. That's the thing that's going to move it forward. Then you went into PMF, and you said that the kind of, you, you said what were the paths that you had to go through. Uh, so first you need to have to, you have to prove you can attract a few people. So, so that's the acquisition part. After you attract, uh, you need to have a good product and that's retention. Uh, and here is where you see if you can do it for free, you have a problem. You don't have to think about monetization before you can actually attract people with a free product. That's when you understand you're in the right path. And then you were saying that, um, of course, what is hard is to find a good product, not a product. There's a lot of products in the market. The thing, the thing is finding the good ones. And how do you start talking about PLG as an IC? First, you need to learn how your products are being sold in market to build a business case. That's how you do it. Just knowing about product is not enough anymore. And AI is going to make it very obvious very soon. Going to the thought leadership and a bit about personal growth. You mentioned that it's important if you want to grow in this career, you need to map your weaknesses and then iron them out to grow on your career. You need to be honest to yourself and your company and understand if you need to go somewhere else to grow. Sometimes there's no room, you just have to go somewhere else, but that's, you need to understand yourself and with your company. And then you just have to put into work every day because effort is going to compound. It starts slow, but eventually the results will start appearing. Then you also mentioned it's very easy to get high on your own supply. This is when you're talking about humor, when you grow and get more known. So humor is a way to turn it down and bring it back to earth. Make, make, and making fun of yourself is also a big part of it. But humor can get you in trouble. You're saying that people used to make fun of you, of your strong opinions, but now that you're bigger, they don't do anymore. And that's actually not that good because you, you enjoyed those discussions, your healthy discussions. It's also always positive to discuss ideas. Then just a few things I also pointed out that you mentioned that in terms of learning, I thought this was interesting. You suggest people consider audiobooks because, for example, for you, it works best to listen to it instead of reading. So people just should think about it as an option. In terms of friendships, you said the best friendships are the ones where you're celebrating each other, the success of each other, but also you're feeling a bit jealous that you didn't think about it or that, or you, or that you did it. So it's good to have a bit of competitiveness between friends. And then in terms of confidence, you also mentioned that it's important to have a healthy dose of imposter syndrome to keep you on your toes and fuel your continuous learning. Then we talked about pets as a PM and you said there's pretty much three paths that you can go now, going growth, going through the growth path, just be just being a classic PM and just climbing the usual ladder as a PM or going the technical path, which you mentioned, for example, exploring AI. Um, but the thing is, and sometimes people think that just being an average PM is not a is not interesting anymore or not fun anymore or valuable for the market, but that's not true because an average classical PM in, a, in our industry could be a superstar in another industry. So that's something to people that you should consider and not let go of those classical classical skills they have as a PM. Then you also mentioned that being reliable and able to drive things forward. Those are skills that are going to compensate for less experience. That's also something people should consider when they have less experience. In terms of trends, just to finish up, uh, you said that a trend that you see is basically anything related to growth. So you need to make it easy to work with sales and understand how the sales process works and understand how it can be part of it and help uh, that part of the company as well, that part of the business. So that's it. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. I mean, I didn't realize we talked about so many serious stuff. Yeah, I talked a lot. <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah, it was amazing, Leah. Not only there's a lot of great insights and learnings, but it was also a super fun conversation. Mm -hmm. So thank you for, so much for, for coming. And 
yeah see you in the next one thank you guys have a nice day thank you thank you for listening to this conversation with Leia this is the ninth and final episode of our first season and we're already cooking the next one we will feature some well-known international product leaders but also up-and-coming product management voices if you haven't make sure to check our previous episodes while you wait for season two also To support our show and help us bring you even more product content for free, please leave a 5-star rating on Spotify and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, so that you don't miss the next season's premiere. See you soon!